Amen. Well, what a sweet time of worship that was. Church, it's good to be with you here tonight. So excited to open God's word. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to the book of Acts chapter 2? Again, welcome to First Things First. On the, on the first Wednesday of every month, we like to take time to worship and wait on the Lord and to create a space in which uh, he can move and speak and minister to us as we wait on him. And so that is what we are doing here tonight. And if you have been with us this year at our First Things First evenings, you know that we have been walking through and intentionally looking at the gifts of the Holy Spirit that Paul writes of in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so we have been taking an intentional, in-depth look at each gift, each manifestation of the Holy Spirit that is given to the believer. And we've been looking at what it means for us as individuals and what it means for us as the church corporately. We looked at words of wisdom, words of knowledge, gifts of faith, healing, miracles, uh, prophecy, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. And we looked at what that, what that looks like for us as believers who have placed our faith in Jesus and what that looks like for us corporately as a church. And we discovered that, I mean, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I mean, isn't the Holy Spirit good that he gives gifts to us? We don't, that's just God's grace. He gives us gifts. It's so beautiful. What what we've seen with the gifts of the Holy Spirit is that they're powerful manifestations of God's power in the lives of believers. And we've taken a close look at each one to better understand what it means for us as a church. I believe, by the way, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If If you don't have one, we have some guys right here that love to get one into your hands. And again, we're in the book of Acts chapter two tonight. But anyways, Moving on, I really believe that the essence of understanding the gifts of the Holy Spirit um, is written by Paul there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, where he says this. He says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. I think that is like a great summary of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read that again. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each for the profit of all. So in other words, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given for the profit of all, the edification and the building up of the church. Tonight, in our time in God's Word, what I want us to do is I want us to go back to a moment that is recorded in the biblical timeline within the book of Acts, to the very instance where the Holy Spirit himself was given to the church. And I want us to consider what that looks like, the atmosphere that existed in the early church on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, just giving you some context here, we encounter the miracle of Pentecost, the baptism, the coming upon of the Holy Spirit on the early church, the 120 men and women gathered there in the upper room. And the coming upon of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit announces the birth of the church. It's the inauguration of the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this truly is, I think, one of the most transformative passages of scripture that we see in all of the Bible. I believe that this is a world-changing event because it is from this event that the church is empowered to then fulfill the great commission 
that was given to them at Christ's ascension to heaven. Tonight, though, I want us to look at the atmosphere that existed within the church. And I want, it, I want us to relate it to what we do here at First Things First. Because our heart here at First Things First is to wait on the Lord, and that's exactly what we see taking place in Acts 2 within the church. But I, would, I just want to throw out a disclaimer really quick for all of you. And that disclaimer is this. We're going to talk about three things that we see here in Acts chapter 2, but I want you to understand, please, from my heart, that I am not stating that these things we're going to look at are conditions upon which the Holy Spirit is given, or that they are prerequisites for the Holy Spirit to fall on a believer. That's not what I'm saying. The only prerequisite for the Holy Spirit to be given and to fall upon a believer is their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead and their inviting of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. But tonight, what we're going to see is we're going to see the atmosphere that existed within the early church on the day of Pentecost. And look, we can't replicate the events of that day. We can't. We can't replicate Pentecost, right? But we can learn. And we can adopt the principles that existed within the early church. Because when we strive to create an environment and an atmosphere that existed that day, then we're going to experience a powerful move of God in this day and age. Amen? So that's what I want us to consider tonight. And I believe that there are monumental lessons that we can learn from the early church. Just consider this one moment before we dive into our passage. Every single one of us here in this room have been impacted by the 120 people that were gathered in this upper room. Do you realize that? Think about that. That is crazy. That, if that's not a miracle of God, I don't know what is. You have 120 people gathered in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit falls on them. And then now look at us here in sunny California, you know, Vista, and we're gathered in a room worshiping the name of Jesus. God is powerful, amen? He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything we could ever possibly imagine. Amen? So at Pentecost, there's three things we see. We see the church is unified, patient, prayerful, and full of praise. There's three things we see. We see that the church is unified, patient, prayerful, and I'm going to put full of praise there with, with prayerful. So tonight, let's talk about the, our first point, unity. We see unity in the early church. Look with me in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Let's consider what the word of God says to us. Read this with me. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. If you have a pen, if you have a highlighter, if you're taking down notes, highlight that word, one accord. One accord. You see, this often happens with our English language. It fails to colorfully represent what the original text is saying. And I think that's exactly what's taking place here in Acts chapter 2. The Greek word for that phrase, one accord, is homothumadon. <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty crazy word. Homothumadon. Homothumadon. One accord. And check this out. That Greek word, homothumadon, means to have one mind, unity of mind, one purpose, unanimous consent. One definition of homothumadon describes to be of one soul. 
Isn't that a beautiful picture of the church? One mind, unity, one soul. I love that. The Greek word homothumadon that we see here in our English translation as one accord is also understood as speaking of harmony as it pertains to music. It can be a musical term as well of harmony, togetherness, a sort of synchronicity. Like when a chord is played, just a beautiful piece of music, right? And it's, there's harmony, there's, there's breath, there's, there's a togetherness to that chord. And all the notes together are homothumadon, so to speak. There is unity, there is oneness. And I'm going to, you know, make a little reference to coffee. Like when the half and half, just the cream, just homothumadon with the... <clears throat> The homothumadon of the half and half and the it's beautiful, right? So beautiful, especially early in the morning. There's a unity there. There's a saturation there. And isn't it beautiful when a choir sings in harmony? Isn't that beautiful? Or when an orchestra is just on full display, all the pieces are all together. But who has ever heard just one little sour note can ruin the whole thing, right? That's not what was taking place in the early church. There was no sour notes, so to speak. There was harmony. There was unity. There was homothumadon. They were in one accord. So what we can learn from this is that where there is homothumadon, where there is unity among believers, the Holy Spirit is present and active. Harmonious, unified believers are living, breathing examples of the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? You can have people that would have nothing to do with each other in the natural, politically, socially, ethnically, but yet in Christ, they're unified and together. It's beautiful. This is a beautiful truth for us to consider about the early church and the importance of unity in the church, but it's also a sobering reality because a church that is divided in identity and calling and mission is dangerous, right? When a church isn't unified, when when they are divided in identity and calling and mission, it's dangerous to a dying world and it preaches a message that is anti to the way of Christ. When the church is divided, what that tells the world is that there isn't power in the gospel and that's just not true. It's no surprise to us, it's no surprise to me that when the Holy Spirit falls upon the church, it it does so as they are in a state of unity. And it makes me wonder, how often do we grieve the Holy Spirit because we aren't truly unified? How often do we grieve the move of God because we aren't truly unified? Quarreling, fighting that doesn't go resolved, Gossip, bitterness, pain, jealousy, pride. Look, we may be sitting in a room together in one accord, but are we of one accord? Are we of homothumadon in our souls together as one, as the body, the precious body of Christ that he died for? Jesus, I mean, he, he spoke of this in Matthew chapter five in, in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 23 through 24. He says this, he says, therefore... 
If you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, what does Jesus say? He says, leave the gift in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus, in his public ministry in Matthew chapter 9, quoting from the prophet Hosea, told the religious elites of his day to go and learn their own book. It's so funny. I love this about Jesus. He says, go and learn this saying. This is the prophet Isaiah. These religious elites would have studied Isaiah their whole lives, and Jesus is saying, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. From the very heart of God, here we learn that he is most concerned about our hearts being right with him and being right with each other. More than he is concerned about any offering or gift that we could bring before him. What breaks my heart the most is that even on the way to the cross, Jesus was praying for the unity of the church. He's praying, Lord, make them one. As, as, he says this, Father, as you and I are one, whoa, may they be one. On the way to the cross, he's thinking about you and me. It's amazing. The Holy Spirit moves when there is unity in the church, amen? Second thing we see in Acts chapter two is the patience of the early church. It's patience. Ooh, this is a tough word, isn't it? Patience. We don't like this word. Look, before the church would eventually grow and then go on to change the world by spreading the good news of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, before they would go, they first had to wait. They had to slow down and pause and wait on God's timing. I like uh, how one author, Adrian Rogers, put it. He said that you can save a lot of time by waiting on God. (laughs) You can save a lot of time by waiting on God, and isn't that true? In Luke's gospel, recorded in the 24th chapter, we see Jesus with his disciples. 40 days after his resurrection, he appears. He's with his disciples. And he's on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and he's preparing his disciples for life and ministry without him being with them. And in this scene, Jesus is sharing his final words to his disciples. These precious individuals who have been following him for three years, they've committed their lives to him. And what does he say? He says, wait. Wait. Wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. In other words, wait for Acts 2 to happen. He says this in... It's recorded in Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon, that's where we get this idea of baptism. I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then in Acts chapter one, which was also written by Luke, we see that the disciples were commanded to wait in the city for the baptism of the Holy Spirit before they were commanded to go and be witnesses for Christ fulfilling the Great Commission. Why? Why were the disciples told to wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit before they were to go and fulfill the Great Commission? Because the empowering of the Holy Spirit is the means through which the Great Commission is fulfilled. Do you understand? It is by the power of the Holy Spirit 
And here's a little um, spoiler alert. As the Holy Spirit falls on the church in Acts chapter 2, it's largely evangelistic in nature. They begin to speak in tongues, but these tongues are other languages of men and women who were there in Jerusalem. And the gospel is proclaimed and 3,000 people are saved. But before the Great Commission could ever be fulfilled, they were first to wait in Jerusalem for the empowering of the Spirit. And after Jesus tells them these things on the Mount of Olives, he ascends to the right hand of the throne of God. Picture that scene. Gone. The disciples, I'm sure, were there looking up in amazement. And what do they do? They go to Jerusalem and they wait patiently. Jesus told them that the Holy Spirit would fall, but he didn't tell them the day or the hour. (laughs) So they waited. And the patience of the disciples tells us that they trusted in the providence of God. They trusted in God's providential plan. They trusted God's sovereignty and his timing. The great commission was given to go, yet they were told to wait. So we need to understand that God's mission, his plans and purposes must take place in his timing. Amen? Another incredible, amazing thing that we see at Pentecost is that this day, Pentecost, is a very significant day in Jewish history. Pentecost is one of three Jewish festivals that required all Jewish men to present themselves before the Lord in Jerusalem. So in Acts 2, you have hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of Jews gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And Pentecost, historically in the Old Testament, is celebrating the day that the law was given. Did you know that? The law was given to the children of Israel on Pentecost. Are you guys starting to kind of see the connection here? So God, in his perfect timing, sovereignty, and providence, chooses the very same day that the law was given, yet thousands of years later, in Acts 2, to give his spirit to the church. Not a law, not a list of requirements, but the power through which pleasing and obeying God is made possible is given to the early church. I'm going to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon, quoting on this concerning Pentecost. He says this, so just try to read this slow so you can get it. He says, at the commencement of the Old Testament dispensation, what manifestation do we get? God gives his people a law. At the commencement of the New Testament dispensation, what do we get? A law? No. The Lord gives his people the spirit. That is a very different matter. He writes, under the old covenant, the command was given, but under the new covenant, the will and the power to obey are bestowed upon us by the Holy Spirit. No more have we the law upon stone, but the Spirit 
writes the precept upon the fleshly tablets of our hearts. That is some beautiful writing. (laughs) So the, the patience of the early church tells us that they trusted God's sovereignty. They trusted God's plan. It also tells us that they they believed in God's preeminence. They believed in the supreme importance of just being with Jesus. By waiting in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the early church shows us that being with Jesus surpasses doing for Jesus. Do you understand? Waiting on the Lord in Jerusalem, it shows us that the early church understood the importance of waiting and being with Jesus as greater and as more important than doing for Jesus. Think of Mary and Martha, the story of Mary and Martha recorded in the Gospels. Mary's at the feet of Jesus and Martha is busy. Jesus says she has chosen the better. Because she's at my feet. That's the picture we see here in the early church. They, they understood the preeminence of Christ, the supremacy, the importance of just being with him. And before they were to go into all the world, they were to wait. But let me ask you this. Consider this for a moment. What would have happened if they didn't wait? Seriously. What a scary thought, right? What would have happened if the church decided, no, we're good. We're just going to go. They would have missed the promise of the Father. Do we have that kind of faith? Do we have the faith that is willing to wait on the Lord? Because in this case, in Acts chapter 2, the church waiting on the Lord was waiting for his supernatural power for service. Do we have that kind of faith to wait on the Lord or do we just jump into service? Do we run ahead of him? Do we depend on our own strength? Our own natural power. I love Isaiah 40, verse 31. Those of you that know it can say it with me. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That idea in Isaiah 40, 30, 40 31 of they, they, will, they will gain new strength is this idea of exchanging strength. That those that wait on the Lord exchange, exchange their strength for his strength. And it's accomplished in waiting. It's so antithetical to the way we are as human beings. We hate to wait, right? We live in a crazy world. I mean, that's why we have fast food, right? That's why we have, I mean, we hate, who hates traffic? Raise your hand. Really? The people that, you guys, you guys love traffic. The people that didn't raise your hand. Wow. Don't drive with me when we're in traffic. That's why we develop fast food. That's why technology is just ever growing, ever increasing. It's faster, faster, faster. I get frustrated when my computer takes a couple minutes to start it up. You look at the first models of computers, it was like four days to start up, you know. We live in this fast-paced world. We work long hours, constantly checking our emails or social media as us going crazy and anxious and more depressed than ever. I mean, some of you here in this room, probably you might work multiple jobs, Sometimes it just feels like we're playing catch up, huh? Our culture is always changing. There's always some sort of new trend, something new going viral. If you're like me, I have a hard enough time waiting for my food at the restaurant or dentist, man, right? 
Today I was at the dentist. They freaked me out, waiting in the chair. You know, they leave the room. You're like, what are you doing? Like, what, are you, what are you conspiring? What are you planning to do to my mouth? You know, you can hear their whispers. You know, we don't like to be patient. We don't like to wait. It's, it's airports, right? Airports. I'm just going to say that. Airports. Look, the list goes on. It is imperative. It is crucial. It is important that we learn Check this out, church. Please listen. That we learn to slow down. We need to learn to slow down. Be patient. Wait on God. We have to adopt a slow down spirituality. Because that's what we see in the early church. Look at Jesus. The most unhurried person I have ever seen. I love how author and pastor Pete Scazzaro puts it. He wrote the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Emotionally Healthy Leadership. He's got a great podcast, Emotionally Healthy Leadership. If you ever are into podcasts, it's a wonderful and very encouraging podcast. But he says this often, and I've been very encouraged by this. He says, we must learn to do life and ministry from the unhurried place of Jesus. We must learn to do life and ministry from the unhurried place of Jesus. If we don't, our souls will be sucked dry by the chaos, the busyness, the hustle and bustle of our world. We can't let that happen. The early church was a waiting church. They were a patient church. They were a trusting church. And when we consider this, when we consider the fact that they were patiently waiting on God and trusting in his sovereign plan and purpose for them while enjoying his supremacy by worshiping and praying daily, we see that when we wait on the Lord, when we're patient, the Holy Spirit moves. Third and final point tonight, we see what we see taking place in the early church is praise and prayerfulness. Praise and prayerfulness. Say praise. praise. Say prayerfulness. prayerfulness. That felt good. Whew. Okay. Post-ascension, what do we see? Christ ascends to heaven, what do we see post-ascension? Well, we see that the church is in a constant state of praise and prayerfulness. I love this. In Luke's gospel, in Luke 24, verses 52 through 53, Luke says this, and they worshipped him after the ascension, they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. That's what the church did in response. And then again, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, in uh, verse 14, if you just want to turn a page over, you can even read this yourself. Speaking of the 120 uh, men and women, the early church waiting on God, says this, that they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. The early church was committed to praise and prayer daily. And when we, as the church today, are committed to praying and praising while we wait on the Lord, we can expect great things to take place. Praise and prayer position our hearts to receive from God. That's what we're about tonight. It's praise, it's worship, prayer and waiting because it positions our hearts to receive from God. We know this, that praise, worship, it's the language of heaven, amen? It's the language of all eternity. That's what we see in scripture. 
Praise is constantly happening in the throne room of God. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We see this all through, in every biblical example of the throne room, we see praise. Praise is the language of heaven. It's the language of eternity. And prayer, we all know, prayer is the way in which we, we bear our hearts before God and engage in loving union with Jesus. Christ taught his disciples to pray, didn't he? Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 13. I want to read this. Say it with me if you know it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What a beautiful prayer, amen? I have no doubt that the church gathered together daily in the temple, committed to praise and prayer. We're praying this prayer. Can you imagine? Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done. That, I don't think there is a greater prayer than that. Your will, your kingdom When the church, friends, is unified, patient, prayerful, and praising God, the Spirit moves. So tonight, we have an opportunity to respond to the Word of God. We have an opportunity tonight to engage our hearts and our minds with the Holy Spirit. He is present and active in this room, amen? It's not some mystical, weird, freaky thing like we have to conjure up something. He's good. He's holy. He's perfect. And he's here, present and active in our midst. And so tonight as we worship and as we wait on the Lord, we are seeking to align our hearts and our minds with his. Amen? So let's be unified as one, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Let's be patient. Let's wait. Let's wait. Let's hear what the Lord has to say. And then let's be prayerful. As we wait on the Lord, look, be in prayer. This is something, I I mean, I'll just be transparent. This is something I need to grow in. I can't tell you how many first things first I've been a part of where my mind's in a completely different place. Because I'm a failure. Because I'm not Jesus. Because I'm a sinner. And I need help. But there are so many times where I have just been thinking about what I'm going to eat at 8.30 when I get home. Or whatever. Horrible. Sorry, I'm just confessing that to the church. Will you forgive me? Um, But look, as we wait on the Lord, let us be prayerful. And let us pray that prayer together. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Here, now, in this place. Amen? I'm going to invite Pastor Aaron up. Aaron's going to pray for us. He's going to pray for this time. And uh, so let's bow our heads. And and then what we're going to do is we are going to uh, go straight into a time of communion. Okay? Straight into a time of communion and praise. So we're just going to be singing songs of praise right now. 
going vertical, right? Because that's what the early church was doing, right? They were praising God. And, we're, you know, we'll give that some time. And then, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring the guitar back. And we're just going to wait, okay? And we don't have to be scared. <laughs> this is exciting, so. Cool. Thank you, Pete. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you that we can approach you boldly by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you know us and you love us completely. Father, we pray that as we draw near to you, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, draw near to us and that you would minister to your people. Father, we pray like the psalmist, search us and know us and try our hearts, see if there's any anxieties or wickedness and lead us in the way everlasting. Father, we want to... Pray like Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. We pray that our ears would be open, that our hearts would be tender and softened to hear your voice. Father, we confess that we have been distant in many ways, and we want to repent and come back to loving union and slow down to hear you and to receive your direction for our lives. We want to put ourselves on the altar and yield ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that as we approach you, your glorious love shines bright in our hearts and you reveal imperfections that need to be confessed and repented of. Lord, as you show us these things, would we quickly submit these things over to you in prayer and confession to one another and you and and just come back to loving fellowship with you. Thank you, Lord, that you love, you love when we wait upon you. I pray that we would have that same joy, that same, that same expectation of the garden where you just walked freely in the midst. Would we ask that you would walk freely in our midst tonight? Show us more of yourself, magnify yourself so that we may see and obey. Lord, by faith, we approach you and we thank you in advance for what you'll be speaking to our hearts and showing us about yourself. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and say, amen.